0: This morning while the Lord's table was being administered Pastor Mark said this is ultimate reality. And this really struck me. This is ultimate reality. I don't know if you've guys you guys have ever read like any fantasy literature, you know like Tolkien or Lewis or something like that. And there's something about fantasy that gives us this weird sense that we long for something bigger than this, right? We long for something more than this. We want to be caught up in some grand battle between good and evil. We want there to be some kind of magic in the world. And this is the ultimate reality. You think about secularism all around us that tells us there is no grand story that you're caught up in. There's no ultimate battle between good and evil that you're caught up in. Trees are just trees. You know, sky is just sky. It's not the handiwork of God. There's no such thing as a miraculous. But this is ultimate reality. And as we sang that tonight, like, there's coming a day, we, we're going to see Jesus. And Satan is going to be defeated, and the people of God are going to rise triumphant, and we will enjoy the new heavens and new earth that will be greater than all of the fantasy worlds that we've ever read in all the pages of literature. This is real. It's amazing. So praise God for the reality of all this. This is not just some religious ritual. So the third psalm, I will just read again. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Amen. Before we pray tonight, I'm just going to give you one more advertisement for a book. So... We have in the back Dane Ortland's book um, Meditations, Devotions on the Psalms. I think they're just short like short devotionals on all 150 Psalms. If you've enjoyed Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, I'm sure you will enjoy this. It's specifically a Christ-centered view of the Psalms so I encourage you if you get a chance to go pick that up in the back as well. So let's ask God for his help as we look at this third Psalm tonight. Father, we come to you this evening with the conviction that we are caught up in the midst of a grand and glorious and sweeping story in the midst of the greatest battle for the greatest good that could ever be imagined. And Lord, we believe that as we gather tonight to worship you, And listen to your word read and preached. That what happens even during the preaching of your word. Is darkness destroying. Doubt dispelling. Sin killing stuff. This is powerful. This is real. This is shaping us into the image and likeness of the God of heaven. Oh God, we pray, help us now as we come to your word. Speak to us. Let us feel the realities of these things. Give us a taste of it by your spirit. We pray for Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Well, this evening we are entering into the first psalm in the first book of Psalms. Psalms 1 and 2. Function as an introduction to the book of Psalms, and so we can really say the third psalm is the first psalm in the first book of Psalms. Now the Psalter, as I've said before, all 150 psalms, and each of the five books of the Psalms are intentionally placed together to tell the story of Israel from David to exile to promise of the Messiah King and his kingdom. And I'll just give you a little outline of the themes of these books from O Palmer Robertson. Book one is confrontation. Book two, communication. Book three, devastation. Book four, maturation, and book five, consummation. We come this evening to book one. And book one. Robertson sees this theme of confrontation hanging over. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, this first book of Psalms, you will see as we go through it, is going to be all about David. David, 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 David. You'll be like, every time we come in the evening, we're going to be asking, are we really going to think about David again? Yes. David over and over again. David is the king of Israel. God's established king. And what is he doing? He is seeking, he is pursuing a kingdom of righteousness and peace. He is the first king in the line of David, the line of David that ultimately leads to Christ, who is that final and great king who brings in this kingdom of righteousness and peace, shalom, all over the earth. And what this book is going to show us is how that, as in the very beginning with Genesis chapter 3, there was this promise that the seed of the serpent is going to confront the seed of the woman, that this is happening right here. That here's this king, this kingdom, and this promised line, and already there's going to be confrontation. Satan, and, and, and remember, Satan, as he is confronting David... He's confronting David because he's trying to stop God's overall glorious plan of redemption. So he's trying to destroy the Davidic king, the Davidic line in God's kingdom to stop this from culminating. Confrontation. So in the first psalm here, look at verse 1. "O oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many are my foes? God's Messiah, God's King, God's kingdom, and God's people have many foes that should never surprise us. We should expect that because we find ourselves in the midst of this narrative, this biblical narrative, where we are in this great cosmic battle between ultimate evil and supreme good. And that's what's happening right here. But the Psalms are unique. They're not just history, right? This isn't, this isn't, just, this isn't narrative, right? This is the Psalms. It's not just telling us this happened to David and that happened to David. The Psalms are like, they're, they're, they're living history. I, I called this series Life in His Presence. You know, when God created the world, many biblical scholars say that he created the world to be a what's called a cosmic temple. Meaning simply fundamental to being a human being and living in this world is to be in communion with God. That's what it is to be a person in this world. This world is a temple built for people to have communion with God. And it's fascinating as you look at the way that um, the temple itself was constructed with all these creation concepts. We as human beings are meant to experience and do life in the presence. That's what it is to be human. To be human is to be in the presence, in the presence of of God. And each one of these Psalms, it's like, I don't know if you guys have seen or read C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, right? You have the magic wardrobe, remember, that the kids go into. They go into this magic wardrobe and they find this world, this another world. It's like the Psalms are this, are this like little magical wardrobe, and you step into it in order to process and experience life in his presence. You're not just meant to read the psalm. You're meant to step into the psalm. And there you find yourself like transported back into David's experience and you find yourself not merely as a spectator, but as a participant. In some sense, you find your heart longings and your brokenness and your pain and your praises Somehow interweaving with and meshing with David, so you feel like you're living the psalm as you step into it. And this third psalm takes us to a low place in David's life, a place of deep pain. Look at the title of Psalm three. It says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Here is the great King David, the king of Israel. And he's running for his life from his son. And as David flees up the Mount of Olives, he wrestles with the depths of hopelessness and guilt and shame. And what he does is he pens this lament. Psalm 3 is a lament. And this is a lament for the hopeless, for those accused, those who, who deal with a great sense of, of guilt, who hear voices shouting at them, telling them they are worthless and they're nothing and they'll never be good enough. If you need a psalm to step into this evening, I invite you into the third psalm entitled, When Enemies Surround Me. In the first place, I want you to see many enemies. The psalm begins with David saying, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Well, What is David talking about? Who are these foes? Who are these enemies? Well, we have to go back and think about what was going on during the time when Absalom conspired and took over the throne of his father. If you look in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17, you could read this story. And like most family situations, it's really complicated. And one thing I think that is so comforting when you read the life of David is you'll be struck with how common his experiences were in a lot of ways. He fell into sin, He had deep family struggles. His life was, in many ways, kind of a mess, like yours and like mine. What happened was, is one of David's sons named Amnon actually raped his half-sister, Tamar. And so Tamar's brother's name was Absalom, and Absalom was furious that David didn't act swiftly to punish his Son. So Absalom hatched this plan of revenge and he murdered Amnon in cold blood. Then he fled from his father and lived for three years in a place called Geshur. And although the Bible tells us that David wanted to try to reconcile things with his son, he never did. His son spent three years away from his father and eventually he came back to Jerusalem because of the work of Joab. Not even David. And although they tried to kind of work things out, they never were reconciled. Perhaps out of anger and hurt towards his dad, we don't really know all of the reasons, Absalom plotted to take over his father's throne. And so he stood by the gate of the city and he kind of put himself in the position of a judge. And when people would come to pour out their complaints and ask for wisdom from the king, King David, Absalom would stand there and he would receive their questions and their complaints and, and that way he won the heart of the people. And after four years of this, there was a great conspiracy in the city and a number of, great number of people in this city were on Absalom's side and rose up with Absalom to throw David off the throne. And David realized that he would come and take the throne, so he fled from Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel 15, we find David going up the Mount of Olives barefoot with his head covered, weeping. And, he, and we read this, we read, excuse me, that Shimei, this man, came, started throwing rocks and dust at him, and he said this. I want you to read, see 2 Samuel 15 in verse 30, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Who are his enemies? David's enemies were his own people that rose up against him, his own flesh and blood, his son that turns, turned against him. And the words of Shimei here, which really express the accusations of, of the devil Get out, get out. You're not wanted. You man of blood, you worthless man. You're worthless. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. He's saying, everything that's happened is because of your fault. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. You are a hopeless man. You will never win back your throne, David. How many are my foes that say against, say of me what? There's no salvation for him and God. And that's what Shimei is saying. There is no hope for you. There is no salvation for you and God. God is done with you. And this just reminds me so much of experiences of depression. And now, depression is complicated and multifaceted. It's not just feeling sad or down. It varies in severity And it's not um, the appropriate time right now to go into all the details of all of that. However, people suffering from depression and even major depression often have intense feelings of worthlessness, intense feelings of shame and guilt. And that's what is going on with David. You're worthless. Get out, you're not wanted. There's no hope for you, see? Ed Welch said, quote, with depression, assume a lie from the devil is present. Consider it a permanent attachment, end quote. It's always going to be there. And that's what's happening here. There's just this, this shouting lie. There's this animated movie, um, children's movie called Soul, and in in the movie, there's this character, and this character is told over and over again that she is worthless, and she'll never be good enough, and she'll never make it, et cetera, and there's this swirling tornado, and in the midst of this tornado, she's just huddled there, and there are these giants, just gigantic, like, um, really they're gigantic forms of people that she knew who had said these things to her. And they're rising up all around her and they're shouting at her the things that she had heard. You're worthless. You'll never be good enough. You've missed the boat. You'll never do this or that. And she just sits there and repeats these things to herself. I'm nobody. I'm worthless. I'm not wanted. This is what's going on here. These voices are saying of David's soul, all of these things constantly, they're shouting at David over and over again. And I think I was reading Ed Welch a while back and he, he, he was teaching how you should try to personalize the Psalms by putting yourself in the Psalm. Now, you have to be careful with that. Not every Psalm can that be done, but here in these laments, like put yourself here as you meditate on this Psalm. Say, oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many are there rising against me that are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God? Let's ask ourselves this question. What are your enemies accusing and condemning you? Can you identify the voices? It's important to be able to identify the voices that are shouting at you from the voice of God, from the truth of God. What are your enemies? Put yourself in this psalm. Maybe it's something that a friend said to you. It's something maybe that a parent said to you. It could even be something that a pastor said to you. Because sometimes pastors say stupid things and they come with a lot of weight. It could be something you said to yourself, about yourself. I don't know. But what are the enemies, the voices in your head, in your life that are telling you you are not wanted, you are worthless, this is all your fault, you are full of guilt, you're full of shame, there's no hope for you, there's no salvation for you and God. Identify the lie. You've got to identify the voice of your enemies. Well, as David it talks about this brutal situation that he's going, going through, this pain in his soul. He then moves from his pain to think about the hope that he has in God. So then we see second, sure hope. I love what Mark Vrogup says. Quote, I'm gonna show you this quote here. Complaints are not cul-de-sacs of sorrow, but bridges that lead to God's character. David's complaint here in verses 1 and 2 are purposefully leading him into meditating on the character of God. They're not cul-de-sacs, right? You don't end there. You're traveling along the rails of complaint to a destination. And that's what David does. He then meditates on the character of God. He thinks about who God is, and then he thinks about what God has done. In the first place, he thinks about how that God is his defender. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. But you, O Lord. Now here's the voice of truth. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. The accusations were rolling towards David, they were false. David was not guilty of the blood of the house of Saul. And think about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our defender against all of the accusations of condemnation from the devil. Think about 1 John 2 and verse 1, which says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What is an advocate? An advocate is a legal defendant. Jesus, as the high priest, functions as the legal defendant of God's people. Now look at this here. If anyone sins, because John knows that we're going to. And often it's that little bit of truth in the devils, in in the accusations of Satan or of people, that really grabs a hold of us because there is some sin in us. There is. But does that mean that we are worthless and forsaken and not wanted and guilty and shamed before God? Well, John says here that. Sin causes the advocate Jesus Christ the righteous, to rise up that 's really the occasion of christ 's work is the sin of god 's people. If you sin, we have an advocate john 's simply saying, if you 've sinned, it will be okay with your soul and God because there is an advocate who defends you. Jesus stands up when we sin and, sa- and shows himself and his Glory in his wounds, in his blood. And he says, forgiven, accepted, pardoned. Not guilty. As far as our standing before God, that guilt is gone. We're justified. Not forgotten. Not forsaken. Not unwanted. Deeply loved. Deeply wanted. And he is echoing what the Father's heart is. Our advocate standing up and defending us. And that's why, where you need to recognize the lie and replace the lie with the truth of Scripture, that the Lord Jesus loves you with a love that cannot even be, you can't begin to touch the tip top of that mountain. Of, I mean, what kind of love leads Christ to die a brutal death on the cross? So that he can have you. Not wanted, not loved, worthless, lies. Deep and dark lies that kill the soul. He is your defender. You think about the blood of Abel. Do you remember how it cried from the ground? And the blood of Abel cried from the ground, and what did it say? Condemned. Remember he was killed by his brother? Condemned. Condemned. And his blood cried from the ground so greatly and loudly that the Lord says, I see this and I hear this. But the blood of Jesus cries out even louder than the blood of Abel. Like the blood of Jesus is, is screaming, forgiven, justified, accepted, valued, loved, never forsaken, never forgotten. But not only this, the Lord defends us against all of our enemies. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, is talking about Christ's office as king, right? He functions as king, it says that he defeats all his and our enemies. He defeats all of our enemies. He is our great defender, our mighty Christ, that man of war that stands up to defend his people. Nothing touches a hair of his children's head without his permission. As the hymn says, we rest on thee our shield and our defender. But then second, God is my source of value. He says... my glory when the bottom falls out of your life when you see the worst side of you when all your dreams slip through your fingers and you wonder if you're worth anything at all where do you go to find self worth where do you go to find value is it your job your family your name your money your religious affiliation David doesn't root his value, his ultimate sense of self worth, in any of these things. He roots it in God. He says, You are my glory. Now, this is fascinating. Here's David walking barefoot with his head hanging down, with his crown fallen off of his head, his throne taken by his son Absalom, having lost everything, and he says, I've still got glory. I've still got value. I've still got worth. And it's God who's my glory. It wasn't my crown ultimately. It wasn't my throne ultimately. It's God. David could say, yeah, my crown's fallen. My son's betrayed me. I have my regrets. I haven't been the father I should have, but God is my glory. Your value, our value should be rooted in God. You and I are made in the image and likeness of God. That's our value. We've been as Christians chosen out of all of the people of the earth to be God's treasure and possession. He has selected us to be the objects of His undying love. The Father sent His Son to live and be humiliated and die for us. I mean, how valuable are we? Christ's righteousness has been counted to our record so that we are considered to be as righteous as the Son of God. Christ is in us, the hope of glory, having made our hearts new and shining with his own peculiar glory. We have great, deep, abiding value in who we are in Christ and in who we are in relation to God. And that's the kind of worth, that's the kind of of value that won't go away that you can cling to when the bottom falls out of your life. And then David says, God is my helper. He says, and the lifter of my head. Picture David weeping as he walks up the Mount of Olives, and what is where is his head? His head is hanging low. And he says here, God's the lifter of my head. This is like... The antithesis of there's no salvation for him in God. David's saying there is salvation for me in God. He is the lifter of my head. God's my helper. He has not forsaken me or forgotten me. He will not leave me in my pity and in my pain and in my brokenness. God will one day somehow lift my head. That's what he's saying. Someday, somehow, he's going to lift my head. Man, Christian, think about what an encouragement that is. What are you dealing with today? What's heavy on your heart tonight? Think about it. Point to it in your mind. What is causing you sorrow? Something that happened in the past. Someone or something that you've lost. Something that you regret. Something like a relationship that was broken or a job that was lost or a dream that fell through your your fingers. I don't know what it is, but God is the lifter of your head. It might, he may never, you may never find, you will never find full restoration in this life. You may find a measure of rescue and restoration in this life, but let your heart and mind soar to the day when you appear before Christ. He will lift your head, like, all the way. Revelation 21 and verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Did you know that earth is not heaven? You know that earth will never be heaven? We need to stop trying to make earth heaven. If we let earth be earth and let heaven be heaven, then we can enjoy earth without idolizing or idealizing it. There are some of us that are going to have chronic illness for the rest of our life. There are some of us who are going to cry ourselves to sleep because of some loss or pain, and it will never fully go away. And that's reality, because earth isn't heaven. But there is a God in heaven who has sworn in his word with with covenant faithfulness that one day he will lift every single one of his children's heads. He will wipe all of their tears away, you will never know sorrow. You will never know pain. You will never know suffering. You will never know the brokenness and pain that you experience now ever again. He will put down evil and everything will be made right. Hold to that hope tenaciously. He is the lifter of my head, David says. And then, second, Yes, not only who God is, but then what God has done. David recalls, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. He thinks about his praying and how the Lord answered his prayers. He thinks about his sleeping and how the Lord sustained him in his sleeping. All of us can think about many, many times when God has answered our prayers when he has sustained us during the worst of times. I wonder what David may have thought about perhaps the time when he was running from Saul for his life and God sustained him and kept him alive. Maybe he's thinking of his sin with Bathsheba and how the Lord sustained him Through the midst of that? How God answered his prayers when he cried out to him as a shepherd boy and a lion or a bear was about to kill him? Or maybe when David faced Goliath? What about you? Can you think back to a dark time when God sustained you? When he answered your prayer? Maybe he didn't answer your prayer of healing. He didn't didn't change everything. He often doesn't in the word of God. But you know in your soul, you know in your soul, you probably can't even put it fully into words, but you know that God was there. And you know that God was holding you. It's inexplicable. You felt eternity pressing in to this world of time. You felt your perspectives start to shift and give clarity. You felt Christ become glorious and beautiful, more beautiful, more glorious to you than ever. You felt his sympathetic heart beating with yours. And when David thinks about God's past faithfulness, God's past faithfulness produces our, his present hope. And that's how it can be for you. I don't know what you're going to face. I don't know what things will come to you in this life. But God's past faithfulness can produce your present hope. God will not forsake you. That doesn't mean it's going to be a bed of roses. But it does mean you will find Jesus wherever you go. I recently saw this scene um, where there's this young man who needs to cross a canyon and he's given some kind of magical powers or something and he's told if you step out into the canyon there will be a magical invisible bridge that will catch you. But you have to keep believing with each step or you'll fall through. Well, he takes the first step and he finds that it holds. His faith is strengthened. He takes another step and finds it holds. His faith is strengthened. He takes another step and then he starts dancing in the canyon. You know, when we look back and we think about how we took took steps out on the promises and God held us and God sustained us we can dance on our canyons. We can find hope in God's past faithfulness. Well, then I want us to move to think about how David, in his lament here, he moves through, <clears throat> through this, this thinking about um, his... His God and what his God has done. And then he comes to verse 6 and he says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. He's, he's like fearless now. His fear is gone. And it's not that David doesn't think he could, could, he doesn't think he could die or suffer something terrible. It's not like David's saying, God is with me, therefore I'm going to be good in every aspect. He's saying, God is with me. And so no matter what happens, I'm not going to fear because the Lord is caring for me. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is taking care of me and whatever happens to me is from his perfect sovereign will and he will sustain me through it. And then verse 7 says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike on my enemies in the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And David moves from this uh, contemplation of his sure hope as is typical with lament, into a bold request. He comes before God and he asks for God to remedy the situation. He says, Lord, arise and save me because you're the God who strikes all my enemies in the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. And he's saying, look, you've covenanted with me as the king, you are on my side, you will defend me, so do it, Lord, strike down my enemies. And and we can can come before God as we put ourselves in this psalm. We think about our enemies. We can say, Lord, I am one of your subjects. I am a part of your army fighting for the supreme good in in this cosmic battle. And you will strike. You are the one who strikes my enemies. You are the one who puts down my foes. So do it, Lord. Shut up these voices. Put them away from me. I think sometimes we think that a humble response to suffering is to rest in the sovereignty of God and just be quiet. Almost as if to ask God to change the situation means you're discontent. You have discontent. Don't ask God to change it. You should just be content. But That's not how the Psalms present the way that God's people process their pain in His presence. It is okay to want things to change, to want your pain to go. That longing is important to feed our hope and desire in the new heavens and new earth when God's kingdom comes. It's okay to want that, to want things to change. And it is proper biblical and dignifying of God for us to bring our longings in the form of bold requests in prayer. I think this is an often forgotten aspect of processing pain. When we boldly ask God to change things, in the first place, this clarifies and verbalizes our longings and it gives us opportunity to vent our, to vent those longings in an appropriate way as we bring them before God in a reverent way but bold request. And then as Mark Vrogup says, quote, by asking God for help, we're not only marshaling the resources of an omnipotent God, but we are also reminding our hearts that God can be trusted. End quote. We're bringing our request before God boldly and putting it in His hands, reminding our hearts, this God can be trusted with all my junk. I'm asking him, I'm, I'm begging him to change this. But I know, as I put this in his hands, that he can be trusted with this no matter what he decides to do. But this, this bold request is the act of like, unburdening my heart and placing all of my anxieties and frustrations and hurts into the hands of Christ. Leave, we leave our burdens with the Lord. And then in verse 8, David says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And he moves into triumphant praise. His complaint in verses 1 through 2, as it works from complaining, that's not a cul-de-sac, but a track to lead us to the character of God that that brings us to bold request, leads him then to final confidence and praise in God. And that's what lament should do for us. That's the flow. We should end on a note of confidence. David's not saying, I've got the joy, 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 joy all in my heart. Woo! All in my heart. He's not saying that. But he's saying, the Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my redeemer. The Lord is my defender. And salvation belongs to Him and your blessing, Lord, beyond your people. It's not just a shallow praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is full of rich significance. David has come to this place of confidence even when his head is hanging and his feet are bare and he's walking up the Mount of Olives knowing what's happening in Jerusalem. He can say, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is important as the first psalm in this story of Israel. Remember King the king to exile to the promises of restoration and the coming Christ king in God's kingdom what david david's ending here by saying there's many foes but salvation belongs to the lord that's the whole meta narrative of the whole of the whole bible of all of history there are many foes against god's plan of rescue and redemption in God's people, but salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Right? What will happen? Will the serpent crush the man who's the curse reverser? Or will the man who's the curse reverser crush the serpent? The man who's the curse reverser is going to crush the serpent. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is what's so amazing, that what happens in in the overarching history of God's people and all of history is what happens to you and me individually and in little circumstances in our lives. There are many enemies and many foes, but salvation belongs to the Lord. And for God's people, we will never be lost. He will hold us fast through every single one of our trials. Our faith will be kept intact. Always, salvation belongs to God. And David is rejoicing, this is interesting, in the midst of the tension, even though he has not received the redemption yet, because he has such full confidence in God. Friends, we can rejoice tonight and no matter what we've brought with us, that one day all of our laments will turn to glorious praise. That literally every occasion of lament will be an occasion for rapturous praise. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. It's on Him. Now look, you've, you've got a responsibility as a Christian to, to try by the the power of the Spirit and Christ who lives within you to obey the word of God, but no. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He will save his people. He will triumph over evil. He will wipe every tear away. And not you or I or anybody in this world nor the devil nor any creature can stop him. That's end with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this psalm and how it helps us to process our pain before you. And Lord, we think specifically tonight and pray for those who may struggle with depression at different levels. And Father, We pray that you would give grace and may your truth quiet the voices that cry out condemnation and accusation. We even pray, Lord, that for some that you would help them with your good gifts of medication that are necessary. But Lord, we pray that that would be, you would um, pair that with the work of your spirit and truth to give them grace. We pray for your healing touch on minds. We pray for your healing touch on souls. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.